Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Louisiana Fish Fry, because life needs Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. Whether you're celebrating Easter, Passover, or any of the spring traditions from across the world, it's pretty certain there's some sugar involved. On this week's Louisiana Eats, we're celebrating that beloved sweetener in many ways. First, we hear the fascinating story of Louisiana's own sugar king. As author Peter Wolf describes his great-great-grandfather, Leon Godshow. We'll learn all about how an illiterate Jewish immigrant built a 19th century New Orleans business empire, largely due to post-Civil War Louisiana sugar production and his innovative spirit. Then, we tour the century-plus-old Domino Sugar Refinery in Chalmette, the largest and oldest facility of its type in all the Americas. Finally, we visit the Easter Bunny's best friend, Ponchatoula's Elmer's Chocolates, to learn all about just how Heavenly Hash, which is celebrating its own centennial this year, and Gold Bricks make it into all the Easter baskets of good boys and girls across the Gulf South. Hippity hoppity, Easter's on its way. On this week's Louisiana Eats. I'm Peter Wolf. I'm the author of The Sugar King, Leon Gacho, A New Orleans Legend, His Creole Slave, and His Jewish Roots. How does a poor, illiterate Jewish immigrant build a New Orleans business empire in the 19th century? The Sugar King tells the remarkable story of Leon Gacho, who went from peddler to clothing baron, railroad builder, and titan of the sugar industry. Peter Wolf is not just the author of the book, he's also the great-great-grandson of the sugar king himself, Leon Godshow. Peter joined us in the studio to discuss what he uncovered while researching this largely forgotten figure in Louisiana history. Your great-great-grandfather, it just seems incredible today that he came alone from Alsace-Lorraine at 13 years old. Tell us a little bit about his arrival in New Orleans in 1837. Well, I, I, I couldn't believe it myself when I first heard about his life and his arrival 
I went to his village in Ebrevilliers in France, in Lorraine, to try to understand a little more about where he came from. And it was an impoverished place, very small village, mostly agricultural all around it. And there was no opportunity there for him because he started working as a peddler when he was about seven or eight years old to help support his family. So out of desperation, really, he got on a ship all by himself. First, he had to travel to Paris and then from Paris to the port of Le Havre and get on the Indus, the ship he was on. And for four months, he was at sea, uh, below decks, obviously. And he lands in New Orleans. He comes here because he can speak French, but he's illiterate. He can't read or write. He's never been to school. And he starts his life right here at the foot of Canal Street. There was a family friend here, a Leopold Jonas. Yes, there was a man that they somehow knew something about. And I think a letter was sent to Jonas in advance mentioning that this child was going to show up in New Orleans. And the child knew about Jonas and knew where his office was, which was a warehouse, and wandered there, I'm sure, on the first day, knowing nobody, having never been here and not speaking English and not reading signs, uh, and found Jonas, and Jonas harbored him for a while. A peddler with a backpack. What a scrapping sort of job that was. (laughs) Describe for us how he started to make his way in life here. Well, I think think Mr. Jonas uh, sort of staked him to a backpack full of stuff and told him to get out of town and start working out of the city because the yellow fever was terrible. Mm -hmm. And this child had no immunization at all and no immunity, had never been around the kind of problems we had here, and gave him an idea to go up the river road and do what he could. And the little kid walked out of town with a pack on his back and ends up, as you know, being a very celebrated titan. He would ask permission and be gained admission to the slave quarters and sell to the slaves as well as the plantation owners. He did. I I think he had an affinity for underprivileged and mistreated people because his family had been that and made sure that he was helpful when he could be and fair and humble. So once he gathers enough capital from his backpack peddling and has his first little general store in convent, then he begins that God Show clothing store business in New Orleans on Decatur Street. But it was originally just limited to men and boys' clothes. Huh? Yes, for years, for many years, it was men and boys. And of course, he chose Decatur Street in a canny way because it was right at the port. And a lot of people came to port, was the third largest port in the country. The city was the third largest city in the country when he came here. He did a lot of things right, and certainly one of those things was finding your great-great-grandmother, Justine, because she could read and write also. She was highly educated. Her, her parents were teachers and also immigrants from Lorraine. So you can imagine the magic of these two meeting in this foreign land from similar backgrounds, or similar towns anyway. She was much more educated. He was so clever to get he and his family out of the fray of the Civil War, 
but also certainly his money. Right. He was very prescient about that. I think it's partly that he was a foreigner. He wasn't invested in the South and the old Southern myth. And he saw what was coming. He got his family out of New Orleans just before the war began. He actually rented a big place in New York and started a business there because he had no idea how long he might be away and if he would ever come back. But he, he retained know. his businesses in and New Orleans. His they brother, were still here. The, his brother ran the business in New Orleans, and they were back and forth to one another at cables and things like that. Uh, and in New York, Leon Gacho recognized that manufacturing of clothing was going on, and the sewing machine was a an object he had never seen or heard of. There was no manufacturing of clothing in New Orleans at the time. So learning all the time. And he ultimately, of course, brings a sewing machine back to New Orleans and begins to manufacture, the first to manufacture clothing here. It liberated clothing, manufactured clothing for people who couldn't afford decent clothing before. Well, let's talk about that vital plantation, that first plantation in Reserve, Louisiana, because it wasn't an act of estate building, it was really an act of kindness that he felt he owed this widow. Exactly. He had, he had been ill at reserve at one point, and the widow, I don't think she was a widow at the time, but she was the mistress of the plantation, was kind to him and took care of him, let him rest at the place. And many years later, Sophie Bodescu was her name, came to him, this was during the Civil War, and said she was having great difficulty making ends meet. Of course, there was labor problems, and there was problems with distributing sugar and so forth and so on. It, the economy, the agricultural economy, was a disaster. And he said he was sorry, but he couldn't help her at first. And this was while the plantation was being worked by slaves. Mm -hmm. So he refused to be helped, be involved. Later, after the war, when slavery was over, he did help her. He helped her with loans and so forth. And then later, she had to default to him. And he then bought the plantation, but with the proviso, she could live there the rest of her life and free, totally free of any charges. And he paid her a huge sum in addition to the taking over her loans and notes and so forth. So it was an act of kindness. He did not enter the sugar business on purpose. That's how he got it started. And then he made a tremendously successful place that had been a disaster. In my mind, I could see a tie in the way he sought out innovatively to use new things and do new things. So you got the Singer sewing machine, and then, once he's in the sugar business accidentally, tell us all about uh, Norbert Rilieu's patented sugar refining process and, and, and how this comes into play. Well, I think you're absolutely right in assessing his character and his talent. It was not necessarily for inventing, but for adapting. And in the sugar business, it had been conducted in the same way for thousands of years. There are wonderful books about the history of the sugar business. It was a very primitively run business right into the 19th century. And Leon Gacho realized that this invention, which had not been used, 
successfully, would transform the production of sugar at much lower cost, much less hazard to workers, which was important to him. Hot, moving hot, hot molasses and sugar product by hand had been very dangerous. Fires had been caused and so forth. And he adapted this method. And so he was an innovator wherever he went. And he was actually, as a young man, apparently very good at fixing machinery. Oh. <clears throat> he hadn't any training, but he could tinker. He was interested in converting what was known to better purposes or good use. And he did the same thing with railroads. All of a sudden, he has the capacity to refine sugar a lot more than he's actually producing. Right. And so tell us about how he puts this to his advantage. Well, what he does is he, he's built these modern refineries, which nobody else had. And there, he by the time he's been very inventive, he owns 10, 12, then 14 plantations finally. But he buys them in clusters very smartly around these refineries that he's developed so that they're all in proximity to one another. And he thinks, well, why haul cane by cart and donkey into the refinery? There are these things called railroads that have come into the South finally. They were late to come. And he orders miniature or three-quarter scale engines and cars from the Baldwin Company, which was making the big regular commercial railroads, and lays track in his uh, fields and so that the railroads are now bringing miniature, sort of miniature railroads, are bringing product directly into the refinery. And then that allows him to eliminate the production in each of the plantations and centralize production in three major mills and factories. And the railroads bring the cane into those three factories. And again, it's a reintroduction of a piece of equipment that others had used and invented, but he turns it to great purpose and something he's working on. And I loved that his steam engines were miniature. <laughs> they were miniatures, and really they became artifacts, sort of historic artifacts. And I write that at one of them even ends up hauling people around Disneyland. Mr. Disney buys one of the railroad engines, recommissions it. And in the book, I have over 70 illustrations. One of them that I really like is the one of Leon Gacho's engines at Disneyland hauling people around. We've been speaking with Peter Wolf, author of The Sugar King, a biography of New Orleans business titan, Leon Godshow. Coming up next, our conversation continues as we discuss the death and legacy of Godshow. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats edible content for Louisiana food lovers. 
Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Crystal Hot Sauce, now celebrating 100 years of hot sauce deliciousness. Always made with just three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt. Nothing artificial. Crystal Hot Sauce, how New Orleans does flavor. From Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood straight from Louisiana's waterways, Rouse's Markets tastes like home. And from Camellia Brand, beans done right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. Now celebrating their centennial by donating one million bowls of beans to Second Harvest Food Bank. What a way to say thank you to the community they call home. To learn more and view the new video by award-winning documentary filmmaker Joe York, visit CamelliaBrand.com. If you're just joining us, we've been discussing the life of Leon Godshow, titan of the 19th century sugar industry in South Louisiana. His rags to riches story is chronicled in The Sugar King by Peter Wolf, who just happens to be Godshow's great-great-grandson. Godshow helped modernize sugarcane production at his mill in reserve, just 30 miles west of New Orleans on the Mississippi River. Tell us about the, that little town of Reserve and how it just became what it is today. It became a little town really because of the God Show sugar business. It's true. They built schools and they built community centers and swimming pools and tennis courts and they had movie houses all sponsored by the Gotcho Sugar Company and almost everybody in town at a certain point in time uh, worked for Gotchos. and you go there today and nearly everybody in town still tells you about their uncle or their grandfather or even their father who was part of the Gotcho group. It left reserve grocery store shelf ready pretty much <laughs> exactly. huh? it did in many different package forms everything from a one pound pack to a five pound to a sack to the this and that sugar that was unprocessed sugar that was brown sugar powdered every kind of sugar it became a really big business and by then using cane imported from the caribbean and exporting all around the country they exported to 27 states it was a gigantic sugar business, the fifth largest in the country at its height. So, Peter, tell me what happens to it all. Well, um, a lot and none of it very good. Uh, the sugar company is sold ultimately to the Zeckendorf, William Zeckendorf's interests. Uh, their firm was called Webb and Knapp. It was sold under the I think the market price in a kind of bad set of judgments made by family members and some others who were in management of the Gotcha sugar business at the time. 
And it's after that, after Zackendorf gets hold of it, uh, that parts of it, the operating business, is spun off to other sugar companies, and many people still probably remember Henderson Sugar and various names that were used for the operating business, but the Gacho family had nothing to do with any of those. The land, which is what Mr. Zeckendorf really wanted, has been used for everything that you can imagine and that people who go up that way can see, from huge subdivisions to a Globoplex port to all kinds of refineries. And when was that? It was in the 1950s, late 50s. 1956 is when the final deal was made with the Zeckendorfs, and then all the land development and all that occurred afterwards. Uh, the last really new innovative thing on that land was the Bell Point Dairy. They, they not only did the sugar business, but had a little bit of a dairy down there, too. Uh, that land became part of Bonacare Spillway. So it's, I write about it kind of sadly, but I felt that I needed to report the way it occurred and what occurred. Uh, otherwise, it would be lost in time and history. Uh, the store went bankrupt. 30 years later. Well, at least we do know, thanks to you, that your great-great-grandfather lived a long and wonderful life. And when he passed away, he wasn't sick for very long. Tell us about the end of his life. Well, he was hardy. He was fine. Uh, he was vigorous. He was running simultaneously the sugar business, a huge international sugar business, and the, the store, the downtown commercial gachos. His children were grown and educated. He really saw to their education. He cared so much about it, obviously feeling his own lack. Peter, you must have developed such a closeness with your great-great-grandfather who you never knew. You must feel like you knew him, and he, he must be so visceral to you in so many ways. It's true. I got that close, and that's a wonderful way to, to feel if you're writing about somebody, that you actually got to know them. It, it reminds me, I have a dear friend who was a very good biographer, a woman in New York, who wrote a biography of J.P. Morgan, and she said, Peter, you know, I feel like I'm sleeping with Mr. Morgan. <laughs> well, that's kind of how I felt about Leon Your Gacho. Your great-great-grandfather tucks you in at night. Yeah, huh? sort of, yeah. And I think about characteristics that I have that he has and things that are different between us. You know, he's in my life. He was the most remarkable man, and I am so grateful that you wrote the book because I learned so much about New Orleans and certainly about your great-great-grandfather's legacy. Thank you, Peter. I enjoyed this conversation so much and have looked forward to it. Thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you for inviting me onto your program. Peter Wolf is the author of The Sugar King. Leon Godshow, a New Orleans legend, his Creole slave, and his Jewish roots. (laughs) 
At over 100 years old, the Domino Sugar Refinery in Chalmette is not only one of the country's oldest sugar refineries, but it's also the largest in North and South America. Every day, the refinery processes millions of pounds of raw sugar, turning it into the sparkling white crystals you'll find at your local grocery store. In 2015, Louisiana Eats was invited to tour Domino's massive operation firsthand, an offer too sweet to pass up. We're going to go through right here, and I'm just going to turn this back here. Our tour guide that day was Fred Goodrow, then quality manager at Domino. He greeted us at the dock where the raw cane was unloaded to be refined. I wish we were unloading a barge right now because that would be worthwhile seeing. But these two big cranes that you see here, uh -huh. uh, we will bring uh, barges similar to the ones across the river here that hold about three million pounds of sugar each in. And these two cranes can discharge raw sugar at the rate of about a million pounds an hour. So we were just talking about the trucks bringing sugar out front. Those trucks hold about 50,000 pounds of sugar, roughly. It takes seven truckloads of sugar to operate this place for an hour at the rate at which we're going. So that's one thing about this place is the scale of what goes on is just huge compared to you know how sugar was made prior to this place being built. But after the uh, the war, uh, you know, the, the country was just growing like like mad, and sugar was one of those really really expensive things that someone figured out how to make on a large scale. So there was just a tremendous need for for sugar refineries back, you know, in 1870 or so. And uh, this one, uh, like I said, has expanded to be able to do from three million pounds a day up to seven and a half. We can actually do more than eight million pounds a day if the product mix is right. But this is the most efficient refinery in the Western Hemisphere by far. And it's also the largest in the Western Hemisphere by far. Uh, so it, it, it just points to how thoughtful the people were when they designed this place. They did a remarkable job. So we're about four miles below New Orleans. We're on the, on the East Bank. We've got deep water here where we can bring vessels in that are, uh, you know, that are uh, very large. Back many years ago when we used to bring international cargoes in here, I mean, we can handle ships at the size of uh, these big, bulk carriers that you see, because so, we have about 50 feet of water here off of this dock. When we used to get ships, those ships you know, may hold 40, 60, or even 90 million pounds of raw sugar, and we'd offload them with these cranes. Nowadays, everything comes in in barges. The, the inshore barges hold about 3 million pounds, and the, the ocean-going barges hold about 30 million pounds. So I guess in many ways, you all were instrumental in being the reason why Arabi's here. I think so. Uh, a lot of folks ask, well, you know, you're located in Araby, but you named the Chalmette Refinery. What gives? And the reason is that the plant uh, was named for the, uh, the Chalmette Plantation in Battlefield, which, of course, is located right to our east. As Fred led us further into the refinery, we finally got a view of the massive sugar piles waiting to be processed. Mountains, mountains, mountains. mountains. How tall is that mountain? You know, it's a, it's about 150 feet tall. Um, 
between this building and the one next to us, it's about 93 million pounds we have on hand right now. So the front end loader you see here is taking the raw sugar and placing it into a hopper that then feeds the refinery. So that's around the clock that we've moved sugar that way into the, uh, into the process. This shed alone will hold uh, maybe 120 million pounds and the one next to us here will hold about uh, 60 million pounds. So this is the raw sugar as it comes in. This raw sugar is a Louisiana raw sugars, what you're looking at now. There's a little bit of Texas blended into there too. These sugars are typically about close to 99% sucrose and the 1% balance is the impurities that we're gonna remove. So the building we're going to next is the one that we do the first washing in. As you notice that raw sugar's got a brown film on it. Most of the impurities that come in with the raw sugar are in that film, so we're gonna wash that film off of it. So what you're looking at here is the centrifugal machine. A centrifugal machine is used to separate the, uh, the film from the sugar the dark brown molasses that coats the crystal from the sugar crystal. So what we do is bathe that crystal in a warm brown syrup that loosens that film and then we put that sugar into a centrifugal and spin it up at a high gravitational rate so that the syrup leaves the crystal. The crystals are retained against a copper basket with little slits in it and the syrup goes on for additional processing elsewhere leaving behind a crystal that the film has been essentially removed from. So the next process is called carbonitation and it happens to be located outside. In these vessels what we do is grow calcium carbonate crystals and what they do is they it picks out a little piece of the sugarcane plant like the little fibrous material that comes in with the raw sugar and it grows a crystal of calcium carbonate around it and trapping it. Once we've got those crystals grown in these tanks, that material is pumped all the way up 14 stories to the building that accomplishes all of our filtrations. So in the top of this building, you have the filters that are gonna remove the calcium carbonate crystals along with the entrapped impurities. And then you're gonna have in the center of this building, the carbon filters where we're going to filter that solution again to remove colorants and some of the salts that come in with the raw sugar. And then finally in the bottom of this building you've got the kilns that revivify the carbon. After we saw the refining process, Fred showed us how the sugar crystals are separated and then sorted for packaging. So these screeners, there are two floors of these screeners, that are used to separate the crystals into the, uh, the different sizes that we sell. And this is the operator station where they control the flow of sugar throughout this whole building. And you can see from the screens here, there's quite, quite a bit of coordination that goes on here with uh, selecting where the sugar is gonna go. So once we screen it, we'll direct it to a bin that's gonna feed a certain packaging line and control where the sugar goes from a specification standpoint too because the big customers want sugar crystals of a certain size so we separate those sizes out in this screening operation so that we can meet customer specifications. For 
visual purposes, would you um, describe to us what we're looking at? Well, what you're looking at here are called Rotex screeners. And there are about 20 of them out there that screen all of the sugar that we make. All of the white sugar goes through these. These devices are maybe about eight feet long and maybe four feet wide each. And uh, they're equipped with multiple decks of screens in each one. The screens are stainless steel so that you can separate like four different grades of sugar out in each, each one of these screeners. And then there's just a, a network of chutes that take the sugar from here to the bins that are going to be used to package the sugar. The bins that these Rotex screeners go to range in size from like 100 and 150,000 to 200,000 pounds. We generate our own electricity. We make our own water, uh, just like a, you know, a little municipal drinking water plant. So what you're looking at there is our powerhouse. We have a conventional drinking water plant that's licensed by the state, just like Orleans, Jefferson, and any of the parishes. It's a much smaller version of a municipal plant. Uh, but yeah, we're subject to the same laws and regulations that a municipality is. When this place was built, you didn't have Araby built up around it. You didn't have a community down here, so we had to be self-sufficient. And, uh, and, and, and we still are. Uh, we generate enough electricity to run a small city, about 11 megawatts of power. And it's very, very efficient because we take the steam that we generate, we make electricity from the steam, and then we use the exhaust steam to power things like the vacuum fans. Really, this has been such an amazing experience. I, I really can't say that I've experienced anything quite like this, and I guess it just speaks to the size of Domino Sugar in Louisiana. Fred Goodrow former quality manager at the Domino Sugar Refinery, speaking with us in 2015. okay to eat eggs during Lenten fasting? We'll answer that question when we come right back. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. I just can't Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, now doing for chicken what they've always done for fish. Fried chicken tenders, wings, sandwiches, and more. 
Louisiana Fish Fry has you covered with a mix specially for chicken. Louisiana Fish Fry, because life needs Louisiana flavor. And from the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission. Plan to stay, play, and get away on the Louisiana North Shore this spring. Discover the bounty of the bayou and rich culture from award-winning chefs, soulful mom-and-pop restaurants, extraordinary bakers, and creative mixologists. To learn more, request the Explore the North Shore Visitor Guide for inspirational stories, custom itineraries, and event information at louisiananorthshore.com. St. Tammany Parish, 40 minutes from New Orleans French Quarter and a world away. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. Is it okay to eat eggs during Lenten fasting? Back in the Middle Ages, when fasting and suffering were considered very pious states to be in, the answer was no. Absolutely no eggs during the 40 days of Lent. That's why, in other places, people often celebrate what they call Shrove Tuesday. That would be Mardi Gras for us with a pancake supper. I don't want pancakes on Mardi Gras. I want king cake. In any case, the pancake thing became a thing, supposedly in order to use up eggs, milk, and sugar, before that big Lenten fast began. But along with lots of other reforms, Roman Catholics have been allowed eggs during Lent, yes, even on Good Friday, while Orthodox Christians still fast from eggs during the Lenten season. Oh, enough already with the sackcloth and flagellation. Let's visit Elmer's Chocolate in Ponchatoula, the spot where some real Easter Louisiana Eats originates. With a heritage that reaches back to 1855, Elmer Chocolate is not only the oldest candy maker in Louisiana, but one of the oldest in the nation. If you grew up in the Gulf South, there's a good chance your Easter basket was filled with Elmer's candy, like gold bricks, pecan eggs, and of course, one of their longest-running favorites, Heavenly Hash, which is celebrating its centennial this year. Today's president and CEO, Rob Nelson, is the third generation of only the second family to guide the chocolate company. He invited Louisiana Eats to Ponchatoula, where once a year, their automated plant returns to a hands-on manufacturing process 
all to satiate our state's adoration for Elmer's Easter candy. Upon arriving, I asked Rob how the company came to develop such a delicious reputation. Well, I think in any business, you have to be the best at whatever you do if you're going to be around for the long haul. So for the things that we've we've chosen to, to concentrate as being our business, uh, we have, I think, the most efficient plan in the world for what we do. We're making about 3,000 pieces a minute, so we're, you know, we're making four and a half, five million pieces of candy a day. Uh, we've devised a way to, to capture that and move it around efficiently. And none of our chocolates for box chocolate are ever touched by human hands. So uh, it's made on state-of-the-art equipment. As it's moved around, it's encased, uh, kind of a configuration we've designed. And then it's packed by robotic arm, picks it up, puts it in the box at very high speeds. So we have multiple lines, but if all of our lines were making that same product, we could make 800 boxes of candy every minute. Uh, now people locally know us for Easter candy. They don't even know that we're in box chocolates, a lot of people, but Easter candy is a very, very small part of our business. We only run it for about six weeks. We're making it the same way it's been made for decades. And, and, and really for the reason that uh, in, here in Louisiana, people expect what they expect, and we can't change it. So we do it the same way. Your Easter candy business in the Gulf South is truly standalone. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, it's, it's really amazing. And every year, there's a national leader throughout the country, the number one item in the United States. But in this market, from Beaumont, Texas to Mobile, Alabama, about as far north as I-20, there are three items that outsell that item in this market, and that's gold brick, heavenly hash, and pecan eggs. Why is that? I think, uh, you know, it's a tradition. There are people that uh, they buy it at this time of year and they store it in their freezer to have it all year long. I have a lot of evidence to that, and I hear a lot of stories to that effect. One, uh, after the Saints won the Super Bowl, we did a Saints version of the gold brick and heavenly hash, and it, it sold really well. But I could tell that people even hoarded that because it affected next year's Easter sales. So you know that there's something going on there. The other thing, uh, and they say that there's no such thing as bad publicity, but uh, front page New York Times, not long after Katrina, you know, the days of everybody pulling their, their refrigerator out to the street and then the street was lined with refrigerators. Well, they had a photograph of a freezer and it was filled with our product. <laughs> Didn't look so good in September of uh, 2005, but uh, there it was, front page of the New York Times. So you grew up in this business. What are your earliest memories? I know you said you went to work with your dad as a child a lot, but tell me about growing up in a chocolate business. What was that like? So Easter was really the bread and butter of the company at that point in time, and and the selling process was different. I mean, we had people going to the stores in New Orleans and you know, we had K&B and we had Shrugman's and we had all these other retailers that just bought so much. I mean, you would go to a K&B drugstore and one side of the aisle was us and the other side of the aisle was everybody else. So it, it was major. And every good Friday growing up, I was here in this building helping to load trucks. We would load trucks on Good Friday. We would load trucks the day before Easter. So, you know, my friends were going to Florida for for Easter or whatever, and, and I was driving a truck. And I do remember as a kid, you know, waiting for those last orders on the day before 
Easter and in between trucks, we would skateboard through the factory because, I mean, there are these perfectly smooth floors. And, I mean, there's no it's a lot easier to skateboard in the Elmer Candy factory rather than on the streets of New Orleans. So uh, it really worked out well. And I, a lot of times I was able to bring friends to come do that. You know, it was, it was work, but it was fun. Today, everything's sold on data. It goes in. We sell it, you know, by Valentine's Day for Easter, and we don't make any more. Elaborate for me a bit about how you managed to go from this very high-tech production to hands-on, hand-dipping, hand-wrapping, low-tech Easter production. You know, it's a challenge. Uh, you know, it, it just it's a whole different skill set. Um, it's a whole different set of equipment, and, and, and it's almost like each year we have to remember how to do it. We all like to sometimes get our hands in the dough in the kitchen, right? And certainly it's fun to do something that's appreciated. Uh, you know, for people that work here, sometimes they're thought of as being celebrities in their neighborhood because that's what they do, you know? So it's just it's, it's fun. It's amazing how much attention we get this time of year for something we only do six weeks a year. Hey, Hey, Miss Sarah, how are you? I had to see for myself what happens in a state-of-the-art chocolate factory when time is rolled back over 50 years. Just real quick, we just need to wash our hands and uh, get some alcohol gel. As the exposed shiny marshmallow insides of Heavenly Hash passed on a constantly moving belt, several ladies stood by, each poking two whole almonds into every egg. There's not very many marshmallows out there on the market you can do this to. A little further along, a group stood around a vat of chopped pecans, coating the nougat eggs with nuts as they were hand-tossed about. Much of the wrapping and packing was done completely by hand as well. A far cry from the mechanized precision that drives their production the rest of the year. The cold stamp room over here, this is the driest place in the state of Louisiana. It's 1% humidity. <laughs> when this line was installed, it was the best line in the United States. come from all over the world, I imagine. No, it comes from Louisiana. About 70% of all cacao beans are coming from Western Africa. So I would say all the beans that we're using are coming from, from Ghana. And, and cacao trees grow within 20 degrees of the Earth equator, so it's, you're limited where it can grow. And, and Africa is the biggest producer. And those beans will come to the United States, and then we bring it in by tank truck. Tanker truck full of chocolate arrives yeah, so here. Big huh? stainless steel trucks on the highway. Yes. You know, you think maybe that's oil, maybe that's gasoline. It, it could be chocolate. <laughs> and I had a story one time, this is a long time ago, this is probably back in the 70s, but we had a truck that was delivering chocolate and he took a wrong turn and he went down the wrong street here in Ponchatoula. Anyway, he was going over a railroad crossing, I think he jackknifed the truck. And so the chocolate started coming out the top of the truck. And all the kids in the neighborhood ran over and were like showering in the chocolate. They thought it was the most amazing thing ever. Oh, that's crazy. No, we didn't use that chocolate yeah. afterwards. <laughs> From their plant in Ponchatoula, that was Rob Nelson, president and CEO of the Elmer Chocolate Company.
Their beloved Easter treat, Heavenly Hash, is currently celebrating its 100th year. it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where over a decade of episodes are available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos, too. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Camellia Brand Beans, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, and the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission. And from D'Agostino Pasta, handcrafted in Louisiana just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Support for Louisiana Eats also comes from Gulf Coast Blenders, dry ingredient blends with New Orleans roots. For more than 30 years, Gulf Coast Blenders has produced custom spice and dry blends for restaurant concepts across the country. To learn more, visit gulfcoastblenders.com. Original theme music composed by David Pomerlow and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, producers Blake Longlinay and Steve Himmelfarb, writer Becky Reitz, and to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting. (laughs) 